This is a Federal News Network podcast. The largest federal union has lent its weight to a class action lawsuit for employees who think they were exposed to COVID-19 at work. The American Federation of Government Employees launched a website where people can sign on. Here with details from the law firm Kalajarvi, Choosy, Newman & Fitch, partner Heidi Barakowitz. And Heidi, it seems like you've become the queen of the class action lawsuit here for the federal government. Update us on what's going on. Well, we filed this case in March 2020. Uh, it was the first lawsuit filed on behalf of workers anywhere in the country arising out of the pandemic. And what we wanted to do, I was worried about all of the clients that we have, you know, and I wanted to help tell their story about what they were going through. I mean, people were truly, um, if you recall back in March 2020, there was so much uncertainty about the pandemic. People were getting sick, people were dying. It was an incredibly frightening experience, even for those of us who could work from the safety of our own homes. But here, this case is about the people who had to leave their homes go into the workplace, risk getting COVID, risk bringing it back to their families, their children. You know, I wanted to tell their stories and get them hazard pay. They're definitely entitled to hazard pay. Quite frankly, I don't know if even that is enough to compensate these employees for what they did. I and mean, these are the people who kept the rest of us safe, kept the country up and running. Does this new website indicate that new people are eligible? Well, Anyone who left their house was exposed to COVID. Um, You know, uh, for example, I got to work from the safety of my own home, but essential federal workers couldn't do that. They had to go make sure the prisons were staffed, the meatpacking inspectors, the TSA agents. They couldn't stay home. They had to leave their homes. And as a result, we're exposed to COVID. I mean, it's just everywhere. It's very prevalent. So this is the same case that we filed in March 2020, the first case that was filed on behalf of federal workers. But what's happened now is yesterday we've launched a website, hazardpaylawsuit.com, so that employees can go and sign up. We have a long list of original plaintiffs in the case. Those are the people who were willing to put their name on the case, file a lawsuit, and try to get hazard pay for the rest of the federal workforce. But now we're opening the case up for the rest of the federal workforce to sign up. So in a traditional class action, you're automatically in part of the case. But because of the court that we're in and one of the laws that we're suing under, each employee must fill out paperwork to join the case. And so that's the phase of the process that we're in now. We've launched our website. It just takes a few couple of minutes, no risk to anyone. Nobody has to pay to be part of the case. It's risk-free to join up. It takes five minutes. Go to hazardpaylawsuit.com so that we can make sure that you're included as we lead this fight to try to get hazard pay for these employees. And what is the court and what is the statute that you're citing specifically that requires this? Sure. So... We're, the case is pending in the Court of Federal Claims, which is geographically located here in D.C. It's a court that has jurisdiction over pay claims against the federal government. It's the same court where we filed and are litigating our cases arising out of the government shutdowns. And then the law that we're suing under, Title V of the U.S. Code, provides hazardous duty pay for GS or GL scheduled employees and environmental differential pay for wage grade employees. So that's the law that we're suing under to get the hazard pay. There's also a component, an overtime claim, a Fair Labor Standards Act claim as well, because once employees get that hazard pay, if you're a GS employee, once you get the hazard pay, it's 25% of your salary. And then any overtime that you worked 
now it's going to get paid out at a higher rate. So there's also an overtime component claim as well. And we know people worked a tremendous amount of overtime. You know, I was with a group of employees who work at the Bureau of Prisons. I was with the union that represents those employees last week. And they were telling me the stories about how much overtime they worked. You could have a prison that had 800 inmates who had COVID, staff who were sick and dying with COVID. And every one of those inmates who had to leave and go to the hospital, now you have to send, they're already understaffed which is worsened by staff who are themselves out with COVID. And now every time an inmate goes to the hospital, you have to send staff there. They were working, um, people were exhausted, working 16, 24 hours straight of overtime. So the case will not only get them the hazardous duty pay, but they're entitled to a higher rate of overtime for all that overwork they did, overtime work they did during the pandemic. We're speaking with Heidi Barakowicz. She's a partner at Kalajarvi, Choosy, Newman & Fitch. And before launching this website, under the auspices of AFGE just the other day. How many plaintiffs had you signed up in the two years since it was originally filed? Well, we had originally, give or take, we have about 55 original plaintiffs, um, and they come from a great cross-section of the country, all over the country, different agencies. And those are our named original plaintiffs. But so this is the first time that we really, by launching the website, opened it up for the masses of federal employees to sign up. And, you know, in just a few hours since we've launched the website, we've gotten a tremendous response already. Um, I'd love to check back in with you and tell you how many people we signed, but you know we're expecting that it'll be a large number. And it's again, it's important. Everybody has to sign up to be part of the case. Um, and we're approaching two years since the pandemic started. And so, you know, I encourage everyone to sign up now as soon as possible to toll the statute of limitations because we want to make sure everyone is paid for every day. Um, that they were affected. And what's your sense of the potential numbers of people that are eligible for the suit? I mean, there's 2.1, 2.2 million federal employees on the civilian side. All of them or a half of them, do you think, or what? Any federal employee who's covered by the law who had to leave their home and go to work during the pandemic, we encourage them to sign up for the case. Uh, you know, we had over 50,000 people join our lawsuit seeking damages for the workers who had to work during the shutdown and weren't paid on time. And this is potentially a much larger number because not all agencies were affected by the government shutdown, but truly everyone who had to leave their home to go to work was affected by the pandemic and exposed to COVID in the workplace. And what about Title 38 employees at Veterans Affairs? And a lot of them are in AFGE also. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm honored to work with AFGE on this case um, because I think I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You know, I'm a union person and I have never been more proud to be affiliated with a union than I was during the pandemic. Agencies and managers were not doing the right thing. People were literally getting sick and dying. And the unions were screaming from the rooftops about the protections that needed to take place in order to keep people alive. So I'm delighted and honored to be working with AFGE on this case. And I know that they're fighting for all of their employees. So unfortunately, I think Title 38 employees at the VA are not currently covered by the statute. I personally would love to see a legislative change and see that happen. You know, so it's very interesting. The government has already given hazardous duty pay to employees of 
uh, some employees at the VA are getting some type of COVID bonus. Employees that work for the public health service, their medical officers, they're getting hazardous duty pay. So you have this incredibly interesting dynamic. You have these PHS employees and you know what? They're entitled to that money. I want everyone who, who risks their health and safety is entitled to it, but it's, it, it's this incredible dynamic where you have employees of the public health service who are stationed and assigned to work inside a prison. These medical officers are getting hazardous duty pay because of the pandemic, and the GS-7 correctional officer is not. Yeah, that that is a kind of irony, because I think anyone that works inside a prison wall should get hazardous duty pay, because it's inherently hazardous, if not from COVID, then from the other folks that are not there voluntarily. All right. And just a final question. The class action lawsuits over the pay for working during the government shutdowns, you've got two of those from the most recent one and the one back in 20, whatever it was. Those have taken a long time to wind their way through the courts to get to a decision and then for the government to figure out each person's individual pay. What's your timeline estimate for this? Should you prevail? Well, we won in the shutdown arising out of that October 13th shutdown. We won that case in the trial court and the government's now appealed it to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. They've also taken an interlocutory appeal on our case, Terabisky versus United States, arising out of the 35-day government shutdown in 2018-2019. The briefing is complete on all of the cases as of about two weeks ago. So we're just waiting for an oral argument date to be set. The cases are all going to be heard by the same three-judge panel on the same day. And litigation is never fast. But wow, in 2013, you know, the government, a lot of people said we couldn't do it, we couldn't win. And we did. Working on the briefing, I am so confident that the law is on our side. The government violated the Fair Labor Standards Act. They didn't act in good faith, as the trial court found. I also think the violation was willful. And I'm really looking forward to this oral argument and the decision from the Court of Appeals, because the next time the government is faced with a budget impasse, I want them to be aware of this decision and think about the federal employees, the federal workforce who's affected. People really suffer during these shutdowns, not getting paid, not knowing how they're going to pay their bills, their medical bills, feed their kids, pay for gas to get to work. And let's not let this happen again. Um, the country can't run without these employees, and we need to make sure they're treated fairly. Attorney Heidi Barakowitz is a partner at Kalajarvi, Choosy, Newman & Fitch. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to that AFGE website at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Sign up for the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? 
So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.